Hey guys, just a heads up, my microphone cut out right towards the end of this interview, so we've re-recorded a few questions towards the end of the episode, and you'll barely notice the difference, but in case you do, that's what's happened. If you think about sport, it's really simple. Sports are games. You know, often it's like ball in net, ball over net. It's some sort of game. And at the end of the day, you know, they're sports, they're very serious, you know, there's physical, but they're games. And the reality is that games, as in the ones that we play on the computer, are like super engaging and they're much more engaging in some ways than some of these like physical sports or, or games. I'm Dan Marisata, and you're listening to Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. We interview fascinating founders so you can leave these shows inspired to do the work of your life. Today's guest is esports pioneer Sam Matthews, the CEO and founder of the gaming giant Fnatic. Now keep listening to find out about Sam's journey from founding Fnatic at just 19 by selling his car to a hundred million pound valuation today, and how on earth you can ask your mum to exit the business you both helped to create. But first, it's such a new industry. How do you even become an entrepreneur in esports? I'm not one of those, I guess, more academic-led entrepreneurs who read about it in books for years and you know, dreamed of being an entrepreneur from when they were a kid. It was just kind of something that like... I just did, you know, I started like, can I sell everything in the house? Like, mom, I want to do a garage sale, you know, like, <laughs> like, well, let's set up like a lemonade stand as a cliche thing, just because I see it and that type of thing. And then I basically ended up playing a lot of video games because I was playing a lot of rugby and then I'd come home and it, like my brother showed me this Quake 3 where you could play against other people. And it was just hooked. I was like, wow, I can actually get the thrill of competition at like any time, you know, rather than having to like wait for someone to play a board game with me or to go on a football pitch or yeah, rugby pitch. It was something that you could just like pick up and like play and compete. And that was such a thrill to me, you know, so I, I really got into it at uni when I kind of went to a dorm in Southampton and had a hundred megabit internet in like 2004, which was quite a good uh, internet connection back then. And because of that, I was like, wow, this is naturally going to be like, huge you know when when internet goes everywhere when devices get better when the games get better people love to compete like of course they're going to want to compete all of the time any of the time and so i sold my car and i sent a team to uh the united states to play in a tournament which they won and you know in that summer and that was just before summer holidays and then the summer holidays i went i went back home and my mom was like what happened to your car and i was like well you know i kind of sold it this thing do this thing and she was like I got a bit angry and then she was like well if you're gonna do it let's do it right you know I'll put in some money and you can put in some money from your your uncle's inheritance which was like I don't know 20k each or something like that and and I'm gonna come on and I'm gonna run finance I'm like okay so I gave her half the business you know like <laughs> it was kind of like it was like that and that's how she got involved at the beginning when I was that's so interesting yeah so is your mom technically a, an equal shareholder to you oh uh, she was for a long time um Let's just go back a second. So, you know, you're at university, you've sold your car, you um, have got really into gaming, but then you mentioned, you know, you sent a team off to the States. What does that really mean? Like what, like, and, and especially in the context of, you know, that might sound a bit more normal now, if you're listening and you're into esports, that might sound somewhat normal now, I guess to normal listeners that don't know much about esports, that's still weird. Then that was really odd. So let's just talk about that for a second. What does it mean to send off a team and why weren't you in that team? Why weren't you there with them? Well, you know, as soon as you start like organizing and managing, it like, takes a lot of time, right? So I started like, oh, if, I, if I'm going to get a sponsorship, so I then need to get like the best players and then I need to be in the best games. And already we'd launched like, yeah. So it was kind of like this idea where 
I'd stumbled into basically running a team I was playing for called Creaturin, which was this terrible team name, especially. And it was kind of like, I tried to like, I guess it was like an entrepreneur. I tried to like, I redid the website, did the branding. I've created a sales deck. I did all these things to try, because I wanted to go to an event. I wanted to get sent to this event and I didn't have the money to send myself there. And I, I sent off like, I don't know, maybe a hundred emails to different like sponsors, you know, really long wordy emails that I get like every day now from like 19 year olds. But I sent one off myself to lots of people. And one guy sent back and said like, well, you know, here's the thing about marketing, you know, like you actually need to have good exposure and good branding and good good website and i was like yeah actually this this makes sense and that and 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 you need to be the best and so that's when i basically started to think about creating fanatic and i you know did it at uni and i got my dorm room guy to draw the logo the first version my mate who definitely wasn't an artist (laughs) and eventually like we launched and the first big tournament i was like well how am i gonna i picked up the best teams i could find in europe and i knew they were the best in the world but the tournaments were in America. So I was like, I need to get this team there. And I made a deal with them. That if I send them there, that I get like my money back plus 20%, basically. And they won, of course. And that was like the start of it, right? It was like, I got my money back. I have some money in the bank, but I probably need some more money because I need to send more teams to different places. So it was kind of like that. But yeah, you're right. Like it was such a small scene, right? Like it was people on the internet, on internet relay chat, you know, IRC. And it was like, you know, maybe thousands of people, not hundreds of millions of people right so but it still felt like a scene and probably like especially because it's online because you can like talk to everybody and it feels like something that's that's big was there no like an option of just doing this remotely anyway like what was the reason that you had to go to these physical tournaments even though it was online did you guys find that like a massive barrier or is the whole point that that's a barrier and it kind of forces you into professionalizing it a bit yeah so i mean the number one reason, and it's to this day still very relevant, but also was also very extremely relevant relevant back then, was that if you go to an offline event, you're actually on the set level playing field, right? You've got the same internet connection, so everyone's on zero ping. There's no latency. And also, on top of that, everyone's on the same PC. So it's the only way for it to be fair like and that's the the reality is like back then you know everybody had like some people had ISDN and dial up and stuff like that so to really have true competition and 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 it was kind of like it was like the mecca you know going to this location where everybody's on like zero ping it means that it's all about just pure skill of the teams you know Okay, let's get a bit of understanding for listeners at this point before we go even deeper can you help us define esports so like I like literally I've been friends with you for years and I only only about two years ago actually understood what esports teams do. It was so fascinating to me. So can you actually break it down? Like what is a typical esports team? How do you guys set up? Are there particular games that you guys like gravitate away from? Do you try and do all of them? Is it about like picking the ones that you're best at? Like take us through like literally for the layman and my mum listens to all my secret leaders. (laughs) If you think about sport, it's really simple, right? Sports are games. Every one of them, you know, whether it's ultimate frisbee, whether it's tennis, whether it's basketball, you know, often it's like ball in net, ball over net. It's some sort of game. And 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 at the end of the day, you know, they're sports, they're very serious, you know, there's physical, but they're games. And the reality is, is that games, as in the ones that we play on the computer, are like super engaging and they're much more engaging in some ways than than some of these like physical sports or, or games and tactical and and they're also like 
unlimited in terms of imagination right you can pretty much do anything that you want like is this person zero gravity like are they like having laser pointers out of their fingers like like whatever you can imagine you can make and so when you have a game which is like limitless in kind of engagement and entertainment it basically means that like the only difference between the games which were all kind of like gta or cyberpunk now is that esports arrived when it was like hold on a minute why do we just make people play against each other on the internet these games then we don't need to make like hours and days of worth of content we can just make like the game that's balanced and then it's, it's got some basic rules and we let them compete against one another and and that's basically what was the birth of esports so it's basically fair to play fair games where it's like there's a level playing field and you can play over the internet you can play on any device you can play any time and because of that it's so much more accessible there's like probably around a billion to a billion and a half people playing online ranked competitive video games ranked meaning there is like actually built into the game you're on level bronze you're on platinum you're on gold you're on diamond and so the, these are kind of basically like leagues that are built into the games which you can play from anywhere you know in europe or whatever you want to do what that led to is that obviously whenever you've got 100 million people playing something and there's a level playing field there's the people who are insane right and they're the best of the best and they're the people that you want to watch and actually it turns out that watching a game that you play is actually really exciting who would have thought you know like oh my god i play football watching football is really exciting like it's that's right like the biggest youtuber right pewdiepie that's all about watching people play games yeah and, and it's even more engaging because they're they're able to talk to those people at the same time you know they're able to like engage with them in real time and be like go left go right do this you know like you know and and like when they screw up they're, they're, they're talking to their fans so it's so basically esports is born out of basically technical disruption of well not disruption but it's it's the addition of technology to games and and sport and that's basically what esports is and it's kind of like you know it's been around for like 20 years but at the same time it's just beginning If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. 
It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. When you first described it to me, you called yourself, you know, the, like the Manchester United of the esports world. I'm guessing you probably want to change that to, you know, Real Madrid or Barcelona at times. But hey, uh, but, you know, it helped it helps solidify the point. So what does that mean? And, and sorry, and just to be clear, does that make you Alex Ferguson? Are you the coach or are you the owner, like the Glazers kind of thing? I'm probably more like the Glazers than I am Alex Ferguson because I'm like kind of running the whole business. But, you know, it's a very big comparison to make, so I'm not going to make that. But I'm going to say this, right? Ultimately, there's two major differences from us to like a Real Madrid or a Man United. And that's, firstly, we're in multiple games. So we're in anything that is, is, is an esports title. So, you know, whether that's League of Legends, Fortnite, FIFA, Call of Duty, we are in it or if they're big enough and we can go into it. So if any new game pops up in a new region or a new market, which inherently is super exciting and, and, and is an advantage because ultimately, you know, like Man United, they're kind of limited by if they're doing badly, they're not actually able to like still buoy the brand with other areas. And the second major difference is that we also are managing effectively creators. So we have these creators who are at the pinnacle of their kind of gaming prowess, but they're making content on YouTube, they're making content on Twitch, and they basically represent our brand. So it's like a hybrid between, you know, a multi-sport sports team and a kind of basically talent management brand a little bit like nike manages talent or gymshark has talent etc and so what that comes to be is that we are effectively an esports performance brand so we don't actually consider ourselves as purely a team we actually consider ourselves as representing the betterment of gaming the pinnacle of gaming and that means that now we're producing our own clothing we're producing our own hardware like keyboard we produce headsets and we're actually very unique in that and that no other team does that well and you did a collaboration with gucci yes we did it i'm actually not wearing the watch right now it's it's a pretty watch everyone listening <laughs> but yeah we did a collaboration with gucci I mean, was- that, but that is amazing but i mean in all seriousness like take a moment like you know anyone listening like that is a great example because gucci is you know arguably at the moment the number one fashion brand in the whole entire world and you know to be doing a partnership you know not something that they would take lightly and you know if you could write a list of the people that you'd want to do a partnership with Gucci would be number one on there so that is in it's just unbelievable thank you I mean it was something that you know coming into 2020 if you'd asked me in 2019 like could you imagine you would be here you know in 2004 and the answer would have been like yeah that kind of makes sense but then if you ask me like, you know, six months later, if you imagine if I'd be where I was when we were announcing BMW and then Gucci, like, no, like, I think that's that's the truth of it. Like, I never would have imagined that we would have created a, a collaboration with it, with it, with it, one of the pinnacle fashion houses in the world. The last time they did a collaboration was with the Yankees in 2018. And it was it was something that the creative director of Gucci met with our pro team, the League of Legends guys, and personally designed the watch. It was it was it was just insane. And and obviously, like you know, it's something that 
hopefully we're going to do a lot more stuff in the future with these types of brands but it is surreal in some ways that that a kind of gaming team is able to do that yeah it's amazing so now let's go back you know you've gone from southampton you've gone to this first first event you've won like you said which is great your mum's obviously delighted because she's part shareholder with you what happens next so like take me through the next two or three years and you know it's also worth saying that actually um you know how we knew each other originally was actually you were running an agency on the side as well never bland and so you know is is this part of that journey also because you know there wasn't a lot of money involved in esports at the time and you had to have another company going like take take us through some of the actual journey as an entrepreneur like making money supporting yourself like all of these things because it's been a long journey for you yeah so i mean like I started it when I was 19, you know, I, I basically grew it over the next three to four years. And and the reality was that we were running, and I keep using this as a reference, basically like what an ultimate Frisbee team is now was how big we were, right? It was, it's kind of a very small, it was before Twitch had even existed. It was before, you know, live streaming had taken off. It was even before YouTube had taken off, really. It was like the beginning of YouTube. And so it was like really hard to get brands interested. It was really hard to get media rights. And the reality was, was like, I'm running a team at the time. And it's like, what is as an entrepreneur is super hard to get your head around is that like, you could do great things for the company, but you can't manage if your team wins or not, right? And that's kind of depressing at some point. So for me, I got to the point where I was like, I don't know when this is going to get there. It's going to take a while. And I'm, I'm like, you know, at the time I'm reading like TechCrunch every day. I'm like really thinking about building products and startups. And, and that's basically, you know, I'd noticed that like uh, we'd created a website with profiles and we had like almost 100,000 people every week on our website just chatting to each other. And I was like, wait a minute, like, you know, Facebook is coming up, like gamers want to talk to each other. Doesn't it make sense to create a gaming social network? So I launched Ugame. Um, we got our first bit of outside funding. We launched on TechCrunch. Like we had two articles on TechCrunch in the heyday of TechCrunch when it was like, there was no other tech press. It was like just TechCrunch and like some random other websites. It was 2007. Mashable. Yeah, Mashable. Yeah, it was probably before Mashable. Like it was super early in the tech scene. And I basically started running a tech product because I was like, I want to build a scalable company, which is kind of outside of, uh, and we got to 300,000 users. We you built a 10 person team. I moved to London. You know, I was like in the middle. Where were you at the time? Southampton. So I did it all out of university. Yeah. For like five years and then moved up to London. I was like, wow, big city, so much opportunity. And then, and basically I started pitching VCs and we got like pretty far down the line with Intel Capital. And we'd gone, I went to Silicon Valley and I was like talking to them. You know, in London, turns out that one of my best friends in the world, who wasn't my best friend at the time, was Kieran O'Neill. And he uh, he had started a gaming social network too, at Playfire. And we were actually, he had just raised from the London tech scene. And it was like, you can't really have space in the London tech scene, which is about 40 people at the time, to have two gaming social networks out of the one region. And then what happened was Lehman Brothers collapsed um, and, you know, all the VC money dried up. You know, our, our 300,000 users in a B2C advertising company where no advertising wasn't really kind of what people wanted to invest into. So I kind of slowly wound that up and I was like, well, I have two choices. I either go back to Fnatic and like know that I'm still kind of running an esports team and it's like going to take a long time and I don't know when it's going to be. It's an ecosystem thing rather than my in my control to scale it, you know. And so instead, the second option was to take the development team that I created 
and start building, you know, I'd become entrenched in the London tech scene and start working on, on other you know, people's startups and, and helping them build their products. And so that's basically what we did. We, we I launched Neverbland. It became like a product incubator. I ran that and, you know, basically built up to a team of 40 designers, developers. We started building other people's products. Like we worked on some companies like Bulb. We did their early product uh, in the design, especially Everpress, uh, a number of London tech startups. We worked with at, at early doors, but I kind of quickly got it's working for others, man. It's not, it's not, I've never been able to do that. Even though it was my company, I just didn't really like, you know, I always wanted to run their companies basically. You know, so I ended up like basically bringing in a CEO and building my own startups off the profit of the agency. And I launched three startups inside of that agency. One of them was uh, called Voted. One of them was called Conjure. And another one was called Slate. And Slate was like an agency pitching tool, which but basically it was the end of the Neverland story because I sold it in 2015. And, and, and yeah, that kind of, I can finish it up or I could be talking for ages. So I kind of like, yeah. No, no, no. So, so, so just take us through that though. So when you say like Slay sort of ended the Neverland story, do you mean as in you created a product there and as soon as you had the sort of finality of selling that product, you were like, I'm done. I want to go back to Fnatic or what do you mean? So basically what happened is like, I was like chaperoning Fnatic from the side as chairman, watching it grow, supporting it where I could. And, you know, in the meantime, I'd brought in a CEO who was now running the agency business whilst I was running the product business instead of Neverbland, the products we created. We'd gotten a product up to be in a pretty good place late where we had like, maybe like it was a B2B SaaS product for agencies to pitch. And it's still going today, by the way. And so is Neverland. Like they're all still going today. So And you're still shareholder and et cetera, et cetera. Do you turn up for meetings or? Well, we just, I just sold actually. So I sold uh, Slate in 2015 to a New York company called Extreme Reach. And that was where I was like, okay, well, unless I raise funds and I wanted to, I was thinking about building like a, a, a you know, beta works style structure where I like building tons of internal startups and raise capital for that. Or I go back to Fnatic and one of the hardest things about, you know, probably a lot of your audience is trying to get customers is probably the hardest problem for tech startups, right? Like a lot of tech startups are engineers. A lot of them are like marketing people. They're like great at building a product or, you know, the product market fit. And then they've kind of like not great at marketing or getting customers or really scaling. And that doesn't come natural to them. Whereas Fnatic had had the opposite problem, right? We'd, we'd have millions of followers across social media. We had tons of customers, but we didn't really have a product that was like generating us significant revenues. We were just relying on some sponsorship deals. And that's what I was like, okay, I've sold Slate. I can actually come back to Fnatic now and actually take my product knowledge and like basically start to create a vertical integration and start to have more value generated by, by doing our own products. And that's basically where, I, you know, I basically said, hey, you know, Scott, I'm going to go back to Fnatic. And that's the kind of whole transition from being, you know, what had been, I guess, the early, early dark ages of esports. And then, you know, while I was at Neverbland, it was like the middle ages of esports. And then kind of around 2016, when Twitch got bought for a billion dollars by Amazon, it entered the kind of, I don't know, the, the, the modern era. And that's when I came back to basically raise our first outside capital, buy my mom out, buy a hardware company and start running Fnatic, basically. During this time of of you being at Neverbland and staying on the, you know, the side of the business that, you know, was was essentially 
there was product market fit. People want tech products. You were building, you were designing, etc. Who was running Fnatic? What was your involvement there? Like, how did that work? And was it like a bit much at times? Did you feel like quite a lot of stress, like having these sort of two worlds, so to speak? Or did you try and separate yourself from Fnatic for the time being and go all in on Neverplanned? The reality is, is that like I had my mom and I had Patrick and Patrick was our kind of like CGO who, who was used to be the Counter-Strike captain. I'm assuming that's chief gaming officer for anyone. Exactly. Yeah. Bingo. Which I created, by the way, as a title. And now there's like every team in the world has a CGO. It's kind of crazy. But there's loads of little things like that where it's like, oh, it's cool. I created that that like position in the world, <laughs> you know, and now it's a, it's a, in the esport world. It's a common position. Anyway, basically, I was like kind of chaperoning, trying to like stop my mom and Patrick fighting too much. And, you know, at the end of the day, like my mom was a very good doer, but she was also kind of like not a great leader. You know, she was very emotional. She was extremely like, you know, she was fair, but at the same time, she and 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 always like paid the bills and always like sorted out like the kind of finances and was and it was very ruthless and probably what was needed in that time but if we were to scale we needed like a more risk-taking approach and at the same time my mom was kind of time that she had retired a little bit you know <laughs> you know it was tough it was a tough challenge to like sometimes stop Patrick from quitting and like keep the team together especially when I'm not focused on it and, you know, sometimes there was there was some significant problems and even thought about multiple times when I had offers to sell it, like maybe it's time to just like, you know, sell it and move on and I'll just become a full on tech startup guy. Honestly, like after being in the tech world from 2007 to 2015, like I got really tired of me too software companies, like cloning other software companies. It just get like it's so much more exciting to work on like brand and hardware and consumers and like millions of people it's like it just that's why i got really back excited to come back to fanatic really was this like a difficult conversation to have with your mum? oh 100 percent. can you take us through like what that conversation what what was that conversation like because we haven't had a, a situation of understanding this kind of relationship dynamic on the show before i'd love you to just take us through it a bit it's like truly fascinating yeah so i mean I've always been a product person. I started a product agency. I didn't really know I was into you know, product until I started like working in tech. And, and I was like, wow, I actually really love design. I love the details. I love the tiny. And so one of the things that I, I recognized is that Fnatic was making probably like three to four million in revenue back then, which was like four times how much money we were making back then for our hardware partner because we had Fnatic branded products. And they were selling it. It was a company called Steel Series, and I, I quickly realized, like, well, hold on a minute. Like, a, their products aren't that great. B, why don't we just do this ourselves? And C, like, that's kind of what I want to do. <laughs> so I started to look uh, at the time for opportunities to basically buy a hardware company, and it it came to a point where we found this hardware company, and we went deep into this process, and then my mum kind of backed out at the last minute. And that's what it was like, the kind of like, you know, we'd put all this work into it and then she just like refused to sign a document. And it was just like, all right, there's something has to shift because we can't be like equal partners in this thing. And if I'm going to come back full time on this, then we need to, to sort this out. And so I kind of got mediated with, my, with a couple of friends of my mom's and we, you know, because my mom was being extremely emotional about it. And, and at the same time, I was like, Mom, if we want this thing to thrive and I'm coming back to it, I can't have you full time in this business, you know. And so, you know, we basically just agreed an offer, which was like basically a million dollars for <laughs> almost like I would say like 
35% of the company. And with that 35%, I basically went out, acquired this hardware company. I then raised our first bit of capital, raised 2 million on a 17 million valuation and basically began the the kind of next phase of Fnatic where now we're a product company, you know, now I'm back in the business, but not CEO yet. Ultimately, my mom recognizes it was the right thing to do and that she was like, she's now enjoying retirement by constantly traveling and like always on the go and and, and just having you know fun. So I think it's, it's hard when like Neverbland had been my, like all my learnings from reading that everything about starting a business, you know, how to build, how to hire, how, you know, reading books by Joel Spolsky and like, you know, get smart and get, get shit done. You're doing all of that and then coming back to Fnatic and like trying to like change this monolithic like tanker which has been built from the complete opposite of what like the tech way of building things you know the startup way of like hiring and five people interviewing process anyway it was it was a it's been a crazy journey to get where i am today from 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 that sense and and how many how many people did your mom have at the time and where were you based so we're based in London. We're based in Shoreditch. We'd, we'd set up an office, actually. Um, I mean, obviously, because it was close by to where I was. It was in uh, yeah, basically an apartment. We were about 15 people. We'd turned in the living room into like an office, which I probably is illegal. But, you know, we're not in it anymore, so it's too late. But <laughs> and besides, I'd be coming for your mum, not you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like back then, you know, like my mom had never like hired people. She'd hired physios. You vet them on physio. The reality is that we'd hired a bunch of people who were kind of like volunteers slash like interns that then just kind of stumbled into like, you're now running all of our global sales, you know? <laughs> like, it's definitely, if you had to start a company from scratch, in hindsight, it probably would have been better to have just like kept the brand and then just rebuilt the entire team. But instead it was like attrition you had to like one in one out like i don't want that function to drop off but that took like two and a half three years which is probably in hindsight just pull the band-aid off suffer for like two or three months as you're hiring the people and then but probably move much faster yeah fascinating thank you for sharing that was there a period of time where you and your mom had a strange relationship because of this? Or did you sort of, after the mediation, just agree like this is what's happened, this is the outcome, like let's go back to essentially like a, a normal parent-child relationship rather than professional one? You know, like how do you have that conversation? That was the main point for me. It, was, it wasn't just the like, I want to run the business. It was like, you're no longer my mom. You're like, only thing is like, constantly like why aren't we doing this why aren't we doing that why aren't we doing this and it's just like mom i just want i just want you to like ask how my life is and like us to just talk about like what the uk weather is like you know <laughs> Come on, let's talk about like you know what we ate for breakfast I, like, I know it sounds mundane but like every time i'd have a conversation with her because i was running another company it would be like i need to ask you about this in Fnatic. i need to ask you about this in Fnatic. and it was just that is like a real hard place to be and 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 you know so actually afterwards it was basically a rule that we just don't talk about fanatic i was like it was more about changing her behavior of like stopping those frequent questions all of the time and from my side like mom can you know i love you obviously we're very similar as personalities so like it's better if we just just let me run it for a bit you know like let me do this (laughs) 
Okay, so moving forward, you said you raised a couple of million dollars, you did a $17 million valuation. You're not CEO yet, but you're back inside the company that you founded and you're kind of finding your feet. What's that experience like? And you know, how did you make the transition back into CEO? Did you make that transparent inside the company that was your desire and what you'd be doing over a period of time? Or were you kind of enjoying being part of the company culture without having to take full responsibility? The reality is, is that like, I'd been CEO at Neverbland and I'd I'd really gotten kind of scarred because I, I just wanted to work on product. I didn't want to work on customers. I didn't want to. I just wanted to work on like, in running an agency, it's like there's lot there's not many levers you can pull. Whereas in a company like Fanatic, it's 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 a completely different structure. If you think about an agency, it's really just like twenty different companies in one because you have every pod that's working on a different client. It's almost like a new company. And then there's layers of management, but really it's, you're not really working together. You're working individually as creative pods. Whereas in a company like Fanatic, especially is you've got every department, you know, from talent to marketing, to content creation, to back office, finance, legal, they all have to work in like harmony, which means that like, there's kind of, it's more complex, but it's also in a way more rewarding because when they're working together, it's like moving fast. So Basically, I, you know, coming back to Fnatic, I was like, I don't want to be CEO. I want to just focus on the stuff I want to work on, which at the time, so I became like full-time executive chairman effectively. And, you know, at the time I'd, I'd hired a CEO into Fnatic called Walter, um, who, you know, was probably like one of the first like real kind of operational businessmen type people that I'd met in the gaming world. He'd done a great job of like professionalizing what was effectively a family run business, right? So he'd started to like put in budgeting and like put in stuff like that, which made sense, you know, because you're, but you're coming back. I'd obviously built this team in Neverbland where every single person in the company was sick. They were like incredible designers, incredible developers. You know, now they're running like Facebook design, Google design, you know, all over the world. There's like ex Neverbland alumni doing cool shit in massive companies you know, Google Labs, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it was like having that talent and then coming back to like this, oh my God, I don't even know where to start. You know, like I have to like rebuild an entire like speedboat from the inside of a tanker, you know, like that's kind of how it felt. And so I kind of worked in silo and then, you know, and, and did slowly but surely, I brought some Neverbland people in. I brought in some like new people. It, it wasn't until kind of like 2018 where I was like, this is not moving fast enough this co kind of CEO relationship where I'm like chairman and basically running the company and you're also CEO is like conflicting. And so we basically had a, a mutual discussion that like it's time for him to kind of move on. It'd been like four years. Uh, he's now CEO of Excel, which is another London-based esports team. Yeah, I wanted to move faster. I wanted to make bigger changes. And that's basically why I took back the CEO position. And, and, and honestly, like best decision I've made <laughs> like it some at some point you've got to realize that like what maybe you weren't good at ceo in a previous position actually when you look at what a ceo does which is effectively judge and hire the talent make so basically make sure you've got great people find the cash aka sales to run the business build the vision and strategy so that everyone can get behind with the, the three things that i'm like and probably in a tech world, be really good at product. Like I really think a CEO should be great at products. And and that's kind of basically what my skill sets were. And it took me to be like realizing that, I guess. Of the six UK unicorns who have exited, can you guess what they all have in common? They've all been advised by our latest partner, Deloitte. And there's good reason for that. 
I know the joy and pain that comes with scaling a company fast. You need to focus on growth, your team and customers, but often your attention is taken away by must-dos in areas like finance and compliance. I'm talking about headaches, like making sure you're charging VAT correctly on a new product, or your intellectual property is watertight, or having the right corporate structure for international expansion. These are complicated areas that you're really not trying to innovate in. So you need a partner like Deloitte who knows them inside out so you don't screw them up and you get more time and increase your chances of success. So whether you're an early stage startup or an international scale up, check out Deloitte's high growth team to help find the right answers faster. Search Deloitte Private to find out more. Fnatic has raised over £25 million in investment and has recently closed a round, including crowdfunding, at a £100 million valuation. Take us through your funding journey. Raising our first bit of capital was obviously challenging, but at the same time, it became, you know, now we've got to become a startup. And that means we've got to basically change almost every person in the company. And I don't mean that because they were the wrong people, but they were the wrong people for scale. Like we needed heavy hitters that have done this before. And then, and then in, in areas where, we, where you need that esports experience, you, you've kept it. So like Patrick is still here today. He's a co-owner of the company. He's a very pivotal part of our, our business. But the reality is, is that like we went through kind of this phase where we're like we need to raise a big round. We wanted to raise around 15 million. And we, we brought in a company called GP Bullhound, um, which you may have heard of. And they, they kind of structured us, you know, this very specific way where it's kind of like how a tech company would raise, right? So we went through the pitches, we we, we spoke with them like and, and prepared for it. They then like lined up probably nearly a hundred companies to go and meet with. And what ensued was unfortunately, and this was not you know their fault necessarily, was it was 2017. So there was like pretty much still an early adoption of esports in the VC world and the tech world. And really what ended up happening was I educated about a hundred different tech companies on and VCs on what is the world of esports and where it's going. And you know, from that, there was only one investor that really came through. And 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 that was like a really tiring process for me because I spent almost like a year kind of raising this capital, trying to get it together. The Americans had come off the back of that, you know, they get sport, right? And they have a bunch of billionaire sports people, like hundreds probably of billionaire sports people. And so the American teams had just raised like 40 million, just like that, you know, 50 million. Whereas like you're based in London, you're like, well, okay, well, we've got to compete with these guys. And we, you know, not compete on spending, but just be able to like compete on buying players or getting players and being able to afford to operate. You know, so we ended up pulling in what I think is a really great set of investors. So we have Beringia, which is the only institutional we have based in London, but really it's mostly driven by family offices. So you know, we've got an Indian family office uh, in Unbound, or are mostly known for telecoms in Africa and, and India. We've got the founder of VK.com, you know, not, not the one that made Telegram, but the other one, which is Lev Leviev. And he, uh, he, he's been really helpful and supportive of our business. And then we've got like a Hong Kong family office as well as an, you know, a number of angels and, and whatnot. And we managed to pull it together by hook or by crook to get a $19 million round done. You know, that was the beginning of kind of now it's like I got the remit to go and get all the people. That's when, you know, I announced that in April of 2018 and basically became the CEO of the business again and ultimately, you know, ended up like 
hiring what I think now is such an incredible team. And I'm so excited to go to work every day to work with these people who are in pretty much every position, like better than me, you know, and that's what's that's that's what's exciting when you've got an exec team where, and, and a leadership team where they've come from like they've just sold their company for 300 million to a US company or you know another one was it, it, it's just it's just an incredible experience to have such heavy hitters around you now you mentioned that you needed some of that money to buy players how much does it cost to buy a player do you just get them for a year how does that all work yeah so that was a slight misnomer i would say that like the reality is, is that we were trying to do much more than most other teams with much less capital. So the reality is we're three things as a business, right? We're an esports operation where we're competing in the biggest titles and the biggest games, and we're getting money from media rights. We're getting money from the league sponsorship revenues. We're getting money from in-game item sales. Then we're brand partnerships team. So we work with some of the most forward-thinking brands in the world, you know, big brands like BMW, AMD, Monster Energy. And we work with them to basically appeal to youth culture not just to have a logo on a shirt but really to create content and, and be an, an agency for them in some ways for this world and then finally uh, and this is very unique to us is that we're a product company so we have our own gear we have our own clothing lines uh, and that's one of the fastest growing part of our, of our, our business in terms of like the money so the money was being used yes for managing what is a very expensive esports operation and of course you know some of the top players in our team are earning hundreds of thousands you know one of them is earning over five hundred thousand. so a year and this is just from salary so this is the kind of level you're talking about where players are getting bought for millions of dollars now a player from a competitor team was just bought for five million dollars you know we've sold players for 100 you know mid millions but not not really above a million as of yet um there hasn't been yet but it could be soon so uh, we'll see but it's like any other sport right there's a transfer window there's scouting there's academy programs there's youth programs and and we're trying to be you know one of the the best at developing talent because that's what we stand for and and that means that you know we always or generally have been net positive when it comes to transfers it's so inspiring to hear about all this success after 16 years of hard graft. But it's obviously not all been that easy. So how close do you reckon you came to quitting? Once I came back, like never. Like that doesn't, I mean, for me, it's like the different periods were really necessary. I had to go and and and, and build Fnatic and realize that it's an esports team and it's not going to scale as fast as I'd like it to scale, right? And then had to create a tech startup and realize, wow, building a team, a tech team is hard. Getting product market fit and money is hard. And then, you know, I had to run an agency to realize that, damn, like working for others and building like services business is not for me. But through all those things, I learned everything about tech product building. I've built an incredible network. You know, I pretty much know the bulk of the London tech scene founders because of that period where every, we were all there grinding with like one or two people, etc. And then, you know, coming back to Fnatic, I, I had to have done that stint in tech to realize that like, you know, what I want to work on is something which is super hard, super complex, and super forward thinking and future. And and I think now we're running a business which is part sports team, part hardware company, part software company, and part agency. And it's like, 
it is extremely complex, but at the same time, it is so damn exciting because every day I'm looking at like new funny video content we've created or another like cutting edge headset design or a Gucci collaboration or a BMW wrapped with a Fanatic logo. It's just like the most fun job in the world to have all of that stuff happening and then have like 4,000 people buy into your company who are just fans because they want to be along for the ride. You know, I definitely am not thought about giving in the towel. I think that's what most entrepreneurs are like, right? We're kind of like, there's obviously a time at which you break or you, you're, you're, you're getting to the end of your tether. And that's either going to be because you're working too hard and you need to take a break and it's okay to let the company to run on its own for a little bit. Or it's because, you know, you've actually reached the end of the possibilities of that business. I think the fanatic possibility is is still just beginning. I know it sounds crazy, but like, you know, we haven't even touched on the viewing experiences of AR or VR. We, you know, the Ready Player One stuff is real. Like Roblox is real. Like this multiverse situation is going to mean that like, yeah, physicality will come to esports and it'll play a big part of, of, of making esports games. And, and suddenly, yeah, we will have competition for rugby and baseball and all of these sports with these super engaging, highly accessible titles and and sports. So final question, I'd love to hear about what you consider to be the hardest day of your business journey so far. What day was it? And how did you deal with it? The hardest day ever was basically around 2008, the end of 2008. And I kind of had Fnatic really struggling with cash and leadership. And at the same time, you game had just died basically because of of, of not having you know money and, and funding and it was just like you know some i think we'd lost a sponsor or something and it was it was just like we weren't going to be able to pay anyone we we'll pay the players and it, it was that like at that moment you know before i'd really had any success that i was like this is going that I I'm not, maybe maybe I'm not good at this. Like, what made me think that I was an entrepreneur? Like, like, well, why did I think I would ever be good at this? And it was like failures of failures, and you you start crying a little bit. And at that point, I was like, you know, I fell asleep and I woke up, and it was just like, you know, it, it suddenly like the clouds parted. Like, well, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, and suddenly it's like you just find a way. And that's happened like never to that level of low. Because, you know, once that was before you built up that inner confidence that like, yeah, I'm actually good at this. You know, I can get people to to believe me. I can lead. I know I'm, I'm empathetic. You know, I, I'm a kind person. You know, these things like once you have that belief, it doesn't phase you. At the end of the day, I, everything could fall down and die tomorrow in what I do. And I'm confident that tomorrow I could build it again. Next week on Secret Leaders. <laughs> The whole kind of culture behind the new hustle and working world and being seen to be working all the time and achieving all the time and but also being told at the same time to sit down and put a face mask on and have a bath and never to tell people to work hard because they need to do self-care and all of that. I think as long as you're listening to all of these voices around you telling you to do a hundred different things at once and sit down and stand up at the same time, then you're never going to be able to find that balance. That was the social media sensation mega-influencer and young business empire builder Grace Beverly. With over 1 million followers on Instagram, three companies and a philosophy on clear boundaries and balance, she'll be joining us to chat about working hard and hardly working. Tune in or you'll miss out.
If you'd like to hear more leadership stories, we now send a weekly email newsletter. It takes less than a minute to read and provides some enjoyable factoids about great leaders so you can impress people with your knowledge and maybe even become a better leader yourself. You can sign up at our website, secretleaders.com. This episode was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta. I encourage you to follow me on social at Dan Murray-Serta for all sorts of stories on mental health and entrepreneurship. But we've also got our social channels at Secret Leaders back up and running now too. So go follow us there, particularly our brand new YouTube channel, where you'll be able to see interviews just like today's on video. If you enjoyed today's episode, screenshot and tag us to share the episode or tweet us. It means a lot. And if you really loved it, why not review us please too? It only takes a second. This episode was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Harry and Daniel at Lower Street Media, artwork by Charlie Stopford and bringing it all together, our head of podcast, Will Stollerman.